John wants believers to enjoy. He's been talking about fellowship. He's been talking about walking in the light. He's been talking about closeness with the Lord and the sin that gets in the way. Well, he's talking about something else that can get in the way. Um, the obstacle is what he in, in this passage is what he calls love of the world. Love of the world. He's already addressed some other obstacles uh, to this kind of fellowship. He's talking about walking in darkness. Don't want to do that. He's talking about disobedience. Obviously not a good idea. Uh, hating your brother. That's something he's talked about. He's going to talk about it again coming up. And after this, he'll get into another obstacle to fellowship, which is false religion. Next week, we're going to talk all about this loaded word, Antichrist. Be sure to come back for that one. Uh, so you can see that John, in caring for his little flock, for his little children... Uh, is wanting their joy to be full. He's wanting them to have fellowship with God. He's wanting them to be in a place where they can have assurance of their salvation. Is warning them of obstacles and hazards along the way as they walk with Christ. Now, the greater context for this passage is we always try and be reminded of. Be reminded of. John has seen and known God. That's how he started his letter. Right? He says, "I know what I'm talking about. I've seen God in the person of Jesus Christ. He saw him." He heard him, he touched him, and through faith, so have we. Yeah. And, and he said that, that he's writing these things, he's writing this letter, so that your joy may be full, and so that you can have fellowship with God and with his church. Because we've come to know God, we can have fellowship with each other. Because we have fellowship with him, we ought to live a certain way. We ought to walk in the light. Uh, but again, John is very upfront about the threats that exist to this kind of fellowship and this kind of joy. There are risks facing those who would go on this walk with Jesus. There is light with Jesus, but darkness is real. There is darkness in his absence. You can't walk in the dark and in the light at the same time. And John talks very bluntly, very unapologetically about sin. And that's another reason why he's writing this, this letter in the first place. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, I'm writing these things so that you do not sin. <laughs> when I read that verse, I'm like, well, you should have wrote a longer book. Um, I need help there. Uh, but he explains how to have this balanced view of sin. And it's a balance of extremes. It's saying sin is exceedingly sinful and the grace of Christ is exceedingly abundant. And that, that's a balanced view of sin. In order to see what... Uh, see sin for what it is you have to look at Jesus as the propitiation for your sins and that was the five dollar word we had a couple weeks ago sin is terrible but Jesus died for it sin is defeatable because Jesus died for it so we've, we've seen in John that this fellowship with God it's something Christ himself pursues he's pursuing you to have fellowship with you uh, he is our advocate before the father John writes to new believers to assure them that their sins are forgiven and that they have a loving father. And he writes to those who are in the thick of Christian ministry, struggling with dying daily, and reminds them that the evil one is already overcome. And he writes to the fathers and mothers of the church, the old guys with the stories to tell, and reminds them of whom they have known for so long. And that's really what we looked at last week. So it's a book about God. It's a book about, it's a letter about the Christian life. It's a book about fellowship. It's a, it's a book that honestly takes into account the struggles that exist in the walk that you and I are on. And I like it for those reasons. John has addressed problems of self-deception, of sin within the body, internal sins that will isolate you from fellowship and from your walk with God who is light. Now, now he's addressing something else. 
Again, it's another obstacle, but he's coming at it from another angle. It's another problem that can be hazardous to the fellowship that you ought to enjoy with God. And it is this problem that he labels the world, or specifically the love of the world. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, we, we certainly need to define our terms here, don't we? It's like, I live there, though. Like, that's the only place I've, that's, I've ever lived. Loving the world is presented here very clearly as a bad thing. And then we've got John 3.16 there in the back of our mind saying like, but, but loving the world seems to be a pretty good thing if you're God. For God so loved the world. That's how it goes. So this can be confusing. And it's important not to presuppose the, the, someone, your understanding, the de someone's definition of this word. You know, saying that Paul and James use faith in exactly the same way will get you into trouble. Okay, it's gotten people into trouble for a few hundred years. Uh, and uh, understanding how the different biblical authors use the word righteousness can honestly be the difference between Judaism and, and Christianity, right? Understanding how Paul uses it differently than David, that, that matters. And the author, for the most part, of course, gets to use the word in their own way. Now, fortunately, we don't have to guess how John wants us to understand the word world here because he tells us exactly what he means in verse 6. It's very clear that he's not talking about rocks and trees and birds and stuff. He says that the things of the world are lust and pride. Oh, that world. Yeah, that world. When John talks about the world, he isn't talking about people. He isn't talking about flowers and birds and trees. He's, he's talking about a system of belief, really a worldview, if you want to go that way, a system of belief that is antithetical to the kingdom of God. That's what he means when he says world. Now, this matters a whole lot because once you understand what the lust of the flesh is and the lust of the eye and the pride of life, it becomes obvious that John doesn't mean the planet. It becomes obvious that John doesn't mean, well, don't love people. Um, you know, but that, those are ways we talk about the world, right? So we have to be sure we're using it how he defines it. He doesn't adhere to some kind of strict monasticism where you live without beauty, without flavor in your foods, or any kind of appreciation for the stars and the trees and the common graces of the created world. You can have a kind of love for those kinds of things. So what you have to see here is that the word for world obviously has different meanings. This isn't some sort of super spiritual way of studying the Bible. I'm not like creating a new doctrine here. This is just how words work. Um, where you find, you know, I'm not trying to find secret hidden meanings in common words. You speak English. I speak it sometimes fairly well. Um, we know this is, this is the way words work. Arms can refer to limbs on a body or weapons. Usually not both at the same time. Unless it's a pun. Okay? A bank is a shore of a river or a financial institution. And there's texture, even in, in some meanings, um, some of the same meanings. The way we word love, of course, is probably the most common one mentioned in, in sermons uh, because it's such a Bible word. And there's plenty of different words, and we translate them the same way for love. But there's lots of words that have diversity within one definition. My favorite explanation of how this works, of how the same word can mean different things, is from Chesterton, uh, who wrote, The word good has many meanings. For example, if a man were to shoot his grandmother at a range of 500 yards, I should call him a good shot, but not necessarily a good man. And I think, yeah, that's, that's, that's about it. That we can use the word good in different ways, can't we? So John says world, and you can't just pile in everything you understand about that word and think you're getting what he's meaning. He's talking about lust and pride. Um, 
You know, we say world and we could think it can mean the planet we're on. The world is a globe, the earth. It could refer to the whole universe, the whole created world. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world. Um, and that seems to mean the specific people on the world. Um, or as we see here and elsewhere in Paul's writings, the world can refer to an evil spiritual system that is contrary to God and his laws. When John writes, do not love the world or the things in the world, he is literally talking about satanic values of selfishness. Okay? 1 John 5.19 says, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. We, we read that and we know what he's talking about. We know we're talking about the selfish values of unredeemed people. We know we're not talking about the created universe, even though, you know, the fly that lands on your forehead you think is a messenger from Satan or something like that. Like, that's, that's not necessarily accurate doctrine, okay? It, when he says the ruler of the world, uh, sorry, when he says that the, the world lies under the sway of the wicked one, we're reminded of what Jesus says in John 14, John 14, 30. He says, the ruler of the world has nothing in me. It's very clear he's talking about the bad guy. He's talking about Satan. So when John says, do not love the world or the things in the world, he is referring to the things that are counter to heaven, things that are diametrically opposed to the kingdom of God. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. He says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. There's a line drawn between those things. There's a division being made. In that verse, you can see that the world is a spiritually controlled, spiritually motivated thing, and it is opposed to God. Alistair Crowley, who I usually don't quote from on a Sunday morning, is the de facto founder of modern-day Satanism. Uh, boiled down, he boiled down his demonic doctrine to this easy-to-remember phrase, do what thou wilt. Now, granted, his brand of 1960s, you know, drug-infused spiritualism isn't quite the same thing that John was looking at at his time. But I would say that his efforts at getting to the heart of the plan of the wicked one was largely successful. If the heart is desperately wicked above all things, as Jeremiah 17.9 tells us, it is. And if wickedness is the goal, which it seems like it is, the methods for reaching that goal is simply unleashing the human heart to its fullest capacity of selfishness. Let it succumb to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Do what you want. He doesn't even need to step in and make you do anything evil if you just do what you want. And these things crowd out the love of God. They are darkness contrary to light. And when your heart's affections are prone to these selfish things, your heart will not be turned towards the God who pours out his love into your hearts by the Holy Spirit. Now, the second part of verse 15, it says, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. John is very binary here. He's been saying things like, you can't be in the dark and the light at the same time. He says, you can't love God and hate your brother at the same time. He says, you can't, uh, now, now he's saying, you can't love the world and have the love of God in you at the same time. Pick a lane. So let's look at these three things that are obstacles to the fellowship uh, and the love of God, the joy that John wants us to have. The, the three things he mentions are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These are things that John says are in the world. And I guess we should notice right now that it's his distinction 
was made in verse 15 between the world and the things of the world. And you're not supposed to love either one. The world as we've defined it is a spiritual system that is antithetical to Christ, which will lead nicely into next week's discussion on this phrase, anti-Christ. It is all the self-exalting, self-centered culture that we live in. It's Babylon. It's always been around. It's a type of Babel. In Genesis, there's this tower of Babel. God says, go spread out, populate the world. And people say, no, we're going to stay right here, build a tower. It's going to be really tall and we're awesome. And then uh, essentially what they're saying is, you're not God. We are God. And then God goes and confuses their languages in order to get them to go and form nations and cultures as he had planned. Uh, the world is, is that spiritual climate that says, no, God, not you, me. And the things in the world are those me-centered impulses, desires, etc. The world is the culture of fallen humanity that has replaced God with self. And fallen humanity as a, as a mass has, does not submit to God. The things in the world are what we're left with when we take God out of the picture. We replace love with lust and we replace worship with pride. You know, things in the world are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, John didn't invent this list, actually. He just read about it in a Bible study in Genesis. Uh, we've talked about how John's favorite book sure seems to be Genesis. Right? He starts his gospel in the beginning. It's like, okay, you're, that's not your idea. <laughs> and, and we get this whole, you know, let there be light. Well, John, he fills in the details there. He comes in strong when he, he, he writes his gospel and he writes this. He's echoing Genesis whenever he writes, it seems like. Well, right here, again, he's echoing Genesis, specifically the temptation of Eve in the garden. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, after the serpent has presented his case for the fruit, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree de desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She saw that it was good for food. That's the lust of the flesh. She considered what it that it would make her flesh satisfied. The food would taste good. It would feel good. After eating it, she would be satisfied. It says that she noticed it was pleasant to the eyes. It wasn't ugly food. Proverbs 27, verse 30, it says, Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. I want to keep on looking. Making decisions based on what appears to be good is often set at odds with faith in Scripture. You know, we walk by faith, not by sight. Man judges by appearances, but God judges the heart. The sinful tragedies of judges, that awful downward spiral of that age of Israel, is described more than once as the result of each man doing what was right in his own eyes. It's the lust of the eyes. They saw what they wanted and then were convinced that because they wanted it, because it appeared good to them, it was good. It was right in their eyes. Jesus says if the eye is bad, the whole body is bad. Matthew 6, says the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? What you look at will either illuminate or obscure your heart. You will become like the thing that you behold. And where you look, that's where you will go. You learn this when you learn to ride a bike as a kid. You know, you don't look at the front tire or else that's the last thing you see. You know, 
you got to look at where you're going, which is why. These are some of the reasons why we fix our eyes on Jesus. And finally, in, in Genesis 3, again, Eve saw that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Here we have another word that can mean different things, or at least have different shades to it. We know from Proverbs that wisdom is, is good. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That God is wise, that, that we should seek wisdom more than gold. But we also read that there is a knowledge that puffs up that is contrary to love, uh, the love that builds up, and that God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. There's that word again, the world. 1 Corinthians 1.27, it says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, like Eve. So there's definitely some texture here that we have to consider. The wisdom that Eve was after was not a wisdom that had its beginning in the fear of the Lord. It was a worldly wisdom. What is worldly wisdom? It's the exact opposite of the cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 addresses this at length. Uh, Paul writes that the wisdom of the world is destroyed by the gospel because the world sees the cross as foolishness. The cross is that great upside-down power, strength through humility, where God stoops in order to conquer. In the cross, we see the weakness of man and the strength of God to save him. Worldly wisdom always says, you can do it. Here's how. Worldly wisdom says, save yourself. Worldly wisdom says, think your way out of this mess or fight your way out of this mess. And usually it shows up something like, climb this ladder to success and be sure to step on all the fingers holding all the rungs beneath you. This is a kind of corrupt wisdom. But what about the good kind of wisdom? Wisdom at its best is simply the knowledge of what to do and when to do it. It's the proper use and application of information. Nothing too sinful about that, right? Not necessarily. Uh, however, Eve saw not only that the fruit would give her wisdom, but that it would make her like God, who we read is alone wise. What kind of wisdom was she after? You know, gardening skills? No. She wanted the wisdom of God to be hers. 1 Timothy 1.17, Jude 1.25, both say God is alone wise. You're never going to know all the answers. You're never going to have all the wisdom. And this is by design. The Lord has set you in a place where you are designed to seek him out for what's missing. Even in the garden, in paradise, before sin entered the world, man was designed to depend on God, to trust God, to need God. The godliness that Eve sought was to be like God in wisdom and, and um, unlike him in power by rebelling against him, we are seeking to be like him in authority. And this is the problem. This is the pride of life. The scripture speaks of the heart being lifted up in arrogance. We're warned by Paul in Romans 12, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. The pride of life is that part of you that puts yourself first before anyone and anything at the expense of anyone and anything. It is also that false sense of security and confidence in what you have or what you know. The lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh might be that disorienting sort of covetousness, which is concerned with what you don't have, but what you want. The pride of life is not limited to what you don't have, but might be concerned with what you do have. It's that place where Laodicea landed, where they were able to say in Revelation 3.17, I'm rich, I've become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. Self-satisfaction rather than God-satisfaction rather than holy thirst. 
being occupied with these things, the lusts and the pride, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is what it means to love the world, according to John in this context. It's what Paul wrote about to Titus when he said in Titus 2.12 that we ought to be denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Now, the reason why John brings this up is not just because he's a stickler for rules and doesn't like it when people enjoy themselves. He's, he's writing these things so that your joy may be full and so that you can have fellowship with God. These kinds of selfish lusts and pride remove any hope of having true joy and true fellowship. John says that the person living according to these motivations, these lusts, is not walking in love. It's not walking in the love of God, which is certainly necessary for fellowship and joy. That, that kind of love is cast aside in favor of cheap lusts and pride. Lust takes up the space in your heart where love ought to be. Pride prevents God's love from being in your heart because you're rich, you have need of nothing. You're fine the way you are. When John says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, he's saying, because you shut that option off. You've walked away, you don't need the love of God in your heart. You've got your eyes on other things and your heart full of other things. When he says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He's contrasting lust, the things of the world, with love. Since he identifies the things of this world as lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, that's the love of the world. And here's the main difference between lust and love. Lust is selfish and consuming. Okay, it is inward. It, it, it's, it's faced inward about what you want and what you need. And because it is inward, uh, inward focused, it ends up imitating a snake eating its own tail. That's lust, okay? Um, I, I don't know if this is a good metaphor or not, but a starving person doesn't love food. A starving person can't love food. They want to consume the food and they need food, but they don't love food. Now a chef might love food even if he's not eating that day. He loves it even if he doesn't eat it. Sexual lust is not concerned for any other person. It is only concerned with how to use another person. Lust for power would be the same thing. People are used and not cared for. Love, on the other hand, is, by definition in the Gospels, a laying down of oneself for the sake of his friends. The love of the Father is giving love, is a giving generous love for God. So love the world that he gave. What passes for love for many is truly just taking. It's just lust. It is greed. I need that person or that thing or that affirmation or that feeling. It's just greed. Where love is generous by definition. It is a pouring out. John would have his little children examine themselves in this light to see what they love, how they love, or to maybe to see if what they think is love is actually just selfishness carefully masked. Because of who we are as people, and particularly as fallen people, we will always struggle with these things. This is the battleground that is in front of us. And one of the first effects of the fall, after a feeling of shame, was the decision to put others down in order to protect oneself. This woman you gave me, right? Love was replaced with pride immediately. But what we've seen in John's letter is this. He's brutally honest about sin and extremely confident in its 
demise. He's very honest about sin, but he's very confident in its defeat. John, as a young man, was a man of extremes, all or nothing, no dimmer switch. Call down fire on the Samaritans. Go ahead, Jesus, let me do it. He's that guy. That was John. Now, as a mature saint, he is still concerned with extremes in a certain way. He wants to be sure that the entire church shares his view that sin is exceedingly sinful, that it is darkness, that you can't assume that it's not harming you. And you definitely can't deny that it's a problem for you. Sin is terrible. It is why Jesus died. But then John is also dedicated to this idea of showing that sin and its effects are ultimately defeated by the cross. If anyone sins, we have an advocate before the Father. That's what he said earlier in this chapter. Chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's holding these two extremes at once. Sin is terrible more than you know. Grace is wonderful more than you will ever know. Amen. And we see this view again. He, he said you can't love the world and have the love of the Father in you. He's defining the love of the world as a series of lusts, but that's not the final word. Verse 17 says the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. And the things we struggle for the things we, we think we need in our lusts and in our pride, the things we struggle for in our selfishness are, as Ecclesiastes teaches us, empty, like smoke, vanity of vanities. It's like chasing after the wind. And the best news is that the struggle itself, you know, the lusts of our heart that we battle against, these will pass away as well. Hallelujah. Amen. The love of God is something of substance that will last through eternity while the selfish lusts of this age will be proven to be chaff blown away by the wind. Now John does not say, perhaps the world will one day pass away. Keep the faith. He is stating a doctrinal fact. The world, defined by John as a spiritual satanic system that places self before God, that world is passing away. Now, last week we read John's words to those in the church he called young men. And he told them, you have overcome the wicked one. And this is not a hopeful wish or a longing. It is stated as fact. John's extraordinary spiritual optimism allows him to say these things from the perspective of a final victory. And in that victory, the one who does the will of God will abide forever. And this should remind you of some of the lessons earlier in 1 John, that fellowship with God looks like obedience. That walking in the will of God is walking with God. Of course, fellowship with God is the whole point. Knowing Jesus, that's what I want. Being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, that's what I'm after. Beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus. This is why we're here, yes, and amen. And that, that looks like obedience. Doing His will is a means of grace. It is a way that we draw near to him. And what we learn from this passage is that it's not just a relationship that we develop in this life. Oh no, if the life, if this is, this life is all we've got, Paul says we're the most pitiful bunch on earth, right? We're in this for the long haul. We're in this for eternity. And these short verses are here for us to use as an, an examination of our own hearts. Examine your loves or what passes for love. Be on the lookout for lusts and be prepared to root them out. Be on guard against the pride of life, that sense of sufficiency. Return to the place of hunger and need. Um, 
Replace these things with these things of the world with the things of heaven. The lust of the flesh can be replaced by the spiritual love that is the fruit of the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit so that you might not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. That's what Paul tells us. The lust of the eyes is defeated by beholding that which your soul loves. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Lift up your eyes for your redemption draws nigh. Pray to the lover of your souls. Open the eyes of my heart. Pray, not just give me vision. Be thou my vision. And the pride of life, the pride of life is completely decimated when it comes into contact with the cross of Jesus Christ. Which is why you must often return to the foot of the cross. Why we return to the supper of the Lamb. The cross is foolishness and a stumbling block. But for us, it is the power of God. You can't keep company with a crucified Savior who washes feet and then maintain the corruption of pride for long. That lie is shown for what it is real soon when you're standing next to the Savior who's kneeling, washing your feet. Knowing that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, knowing that, let us be quick to seek that grace by humbling ourselves, looking to Jesus, seeking his spirit, and loving the kingdom that is to come more than the counterfeits of this age. Please pray with me. Our Father, we love you. We love you. And Jesus, we look to you as you've invited us mercifully to do. The Holy Spirit, we pray, come and fill us up. God, we do not say we are rich and have need of nothing. We have great needs. We need you dearly. Uh, we need you because you are victorious and we are fighting. Share your victory with us. Set our feet on the solid rock that is Christ. Give us eyes to see that this world and its lusts are passing away. And you have, have made, us, uh, made us new. You've had us be born again to a new and living hope. You have made us citizens of a better country. And you've made us a kingdom of priests. Fix our eyes on these realities. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Please stand.